0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Sarah Speaks. We are joined by Terry Hayes today, the Executive Director of the Maine Municipal Bond Bank and a very well-known figure in Maine. Terry, thank you so much for joining us. I very much appreciate the invitation. So no one really grows up to say, I want to be the Executive Director (laughs) of the Maine Municipal Bond Bank. So what is it that you did earlier in your life that has led you to this role? You're a well-known figure, former candidate for governor, Mm -hmm. been around Augusta politics a ton. How did you get to where you are now? Well, it wasn't a straight line, which is
1: kind of fascinating. When I, uh, I want to say maybe now five years ago, I had to sit down and do a timeline uh, because a group of university women had asked me to come and speak with them. And I said, what would you like me to talk about? And they said, we want you to talk about you. That's the first time anyone ever asked me to talk about me. And I couldn't imagine how they would be interested. <laughs> I thought, well, that doesn't seem like I like should be. And I learned some things that were fascinating. And when I look at where I am now, there are things in my past that might have suggested that this would be a place I would end up, but it was not something that I uh, ruminated on or shot for. In fact, it, I hadn't considered it until learning uh, that um, Mike had retired. Mm. And I said, oh my goodness, what an opportunity that would be. I had never thought about it before. And that was Mike? Mike Goodwin. Goodwin. Uh, um, Mike and I were colleagues, and I, um, the Bond Bank provides uh, financial services to other organizations, some of them local governments and parts of the state government and so forth. So I served as state treasurer for four years and in that capacity I was on all three boards that the bond bank answers to, uh, programming wise, there are three different boards. So I spent time there, I understood the programs at least at a board level and um, and Mike taught me a lot of what I know about um, moral obligation bonds and that, that area of public finance, as did my board experience. But when I think back and I, when I put this stuff in a timeline, when I was in college, I ended up chairing the student activities fee. Everybody paid like, you know, 75 bucks a, a year and it went into this big pile of money and there were four or five of us that got to decide what, we, what, what to spend it on. You know, I, I can't figure out how I have, I don't remember, but I, have, I, I ended up doing that, and that was probably the first opportunity, and then when I stopped to think about it, the number of times that I ended up tracking the money, you know, whether it was in my personal finances or some uh, group, you know, that I joined or whatever, right. so um, so when I step back and look at it, I think, well, I shouldn't be surprised, look at that, you know, and then, there uh, was the, a
0: theme. There was a there theme was. and a common thread. It yeah. sounds like,
1: and the, the my experience in the state treasury role is really uh, um, why I was interested in the bond bank. I really understood what it did, and you know I can say if you are in Maine and you are driving on a paved road, yes, um, you cross a bridge, yes, uh, you drive by any public infrastructure, yes. uh, meaning the you know, the water company, the the clean water or water treatment plant, um, a public ho- a hospital yeah, or um, a private hospital, uh, an institute of higher education, uh, any of the um, recent, uh, recent within the last 15 years, improvements within uh, the court system in the state. All of these things, you're a part owner if you're a Mainer because we've helped finance them and mm-hmm. we finance them through Um, selling bonds raising capital and then allowing the borrower it could be the water company or the town um, or the judicial branch to pay those off over time and so the investors the people who buy the bond make money the public improvements get created and and we all benefit from that so we're making a difference across Maine's communities that's exciting that must be meaningful it's part of what really attracted me to right. uh, the organization, because when you understand how broad the impact is, and because in Maine so many of our municipalities are small, mm-hmm. uh, they don't have a lot of uh, necessarily financial expertise, yeah. but they still need they still need a sand and salt shed. They still need um, to raise money for summer roads. they um, so, we provide the expertise and the credit rating so that they don't have to. Mm, um, mm-hmm. We also manage, for the state, several different bond programs. The treasurer's office does all the general obligation bonds. Those are bonds that Mainers vote on. Yep. If it's on the ballot, it's yep. a general obligation bond. But um, I mentioned the court facilities. The Government Facilities Authority is one of the boards that I'm responsible to and for, and um, that's the mechanism we use to fund the courthouse improvements. Anybody who's here in Augusta that drives by the new judicial center, that was funded through um, the bonds that that the bond
0: bank manages for the Government Facilities Authority. Tell me a little bit about your life growing up. Tell me a, a snippet. Give us some insight into how Terry Hayes became Terry Hayes. I am I am number two of six children
1: born in seven years. Um, My my mother converted to Catholicism to marry my dad, and they lived the (laughs) lived the dream. Um, My uh, uh, my, I'm born on my sister's first birthday. Born where? Uh, In Portland. In Portland. I'm a native. Yep, Um, and so we are five girls and one boy. Uh, and I tell you this: my mom um, spent a number of years at Amhai when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and I was raised more by my paternal grandparents and some of my uh, paternal aunts. Amhai for people who don't know, oh, Augusta Mental Health Institute—the old stone building that's on the
0: east side of the river, that right here. That the state house faces. Yes, and it was—it was the state house was actually designed to face Amhi Yes. so that legislators would always have those who needed those yep. services in their hearts and minds it was as they created loss. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well,
1: um, I visited my mother there a couple of times. It was a miserable experience, yeah. uh, meaning it was um, it was hard to understand as a child. How old were you? And, um, uh, the first time, I think I was 11. Wow. 11, uh, wow. 10. I was 10. Um, but in the yeah. middle of my mother's um, stay there, my father died in an yeah. accident. So there were six kids, and uh, anyway, so when I say we were raised by my aunts and my grandparents, I mean it. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, uh, they weren't just babysitting. God bless them. So we, anyway, um, and that was, you know, I, I think probably for me, what was, what I learned the most from that is how incredibly important family is. Mm. You know, I love my, my extended family, my Not just my siblings, but my aunts, their children. I mean, Mm -hmm. think about this, because the impact on them. You know, their life wasn't normal, and it wasn't their parents that, you know, that weren't capable. But now they had cousins that were siblings. Um, Right. So it had a ripple effect. But the family was the safety net. And and so now, as, you know, adults and grandparents, Mm -hmm. I mean, my siblings, you know, my grandparents now, we're trying to make sure that our children and our grandchildren recognize the same importance and without the trauma. Yeah. You know, how do we cultivate that value system? So it's a big part of it. I mean, I'm a, I consider myself a Mainer at a cellular level. Right. I've traveled some, um, but I nothing makes me feel better than driving over that bridge on the way home. it's like a little I sign. always beat the horn, right, when you hit right. to the middle of it, you know. Um, and flying i love flying into portland we can land over the water mm. i just think it's a beautiful view of the it islands is and downtown view. and see bug light right absolutely. underneath you and, yeah, you know it's, it's just gorgeous and yeah. and who wouldn't want to live here you know yeah. so yeah. um i i you know we lived in greater portland portland south portland growing up and and i went to college of Brunswick, and i you know i've when, for so many years, I've heard people say, oh, we have such a brain drain. You know, all the smart kids leave. And I look around and I think, well, what does that say
0: about the rest of us? <laughs> I'm the opposite. I Really? Came, I was born and raised in New York City. Okay. In Greenwich Village. Yeah. Went to college in Massachusetts at Smith College. Came to Maine for law school, Maine Law yeah. in Portland, and never left. And I've had my whole career here. See how smart you are. See. I got here as fast (laughs) as I could to steal a line from the fabulous Von Stinson, if you remember him, the former Uh uh, head of Maine Tourism. He was always so funny in speeches because he had this southern accent and Maine Tourism, he'd say, I got here as fast as I could. So I was like, (laughs) Von, I'm going to steal that from you, and I have. So... Tell me about when you first came to Augusta and started dealing with Augusta and Augusta politics mm. and all of that, because I feel like that's when we first met. Yeah. It's been a while. I feel like we met in oh seven, oh six, was, something like that. I ran for the legislature in 04 and yeah. I came in
1: second to a nice man from Paris. Yeah. And then uh, we both ran again and I came in first in yeah. two thousand and six. <laughs> um, but I had for my first introduction, I, I was a social studies teacher. And um, High school? Um, junior high. Well, oh, wow. we didn't have middle school then, that's how old I am. It was junior high. Mm-hmm. When I, my first teaching job was in Oakland at Williams Junior High School, okay. and then I, then I moved up to Mesolonsky for a couple of years, and then I went into adult ed, and I didn't go back to the classroom. But when I, was a, when I was a social studies teacher in the junior high, I gave my kids extra credit for going to the town meeting. We had more eighth graders there than there were voters and to teach them about i mean this is really you know democracy as at at its basic level um and i i just loved it um when i once i had kids and was living in buckfield i was on the school board for Uh 13 years Mm -hmm. when my daughter my oldest when at the 13th year she was in school i was on the school board and the timing was such that The legislature was trying to find ways to save money, and they weren't adequately supporting, you know, holding up their end. This was before uh, the referenda question, but uh, I went up and testified in front of the Appropriations Committee because I was so frustrated. Everything I read, everything I watched, legislators were patting themselves on the back for um, not—well, I would say for not cutting the budget. They didn't do it. They made me do it. Who they, was
0: governor at this time? Oh
1: gosh, um, at the beginning it was Jock McKernan. I was so it was say, during McKernan. the budget yeah. uh, challenges. You may yeah. remember the first state shutdown occurred? Yes. Um, during Jock's second term, I think. Anyway, it was it was in the the 90s, mm-hmm. coming into yeah. the. Yeah. I got off the board in 2004. Okay, so that was my last year. So. You know, I, I waited. I like to go last whenever, whenever because then I can tie together the things that I really like that other people said, mm-hmm. you know, by way of adding emphasis. And, um, and, you know, all the suits went ahead of me, all the superintendents. And, and, all, and I just got up and said, no, you can be happy about this. You're not cutting this budget, but you're making me do it. Yeah. Okay. And so I just want to make sure you leave here and you know that because it's going to impact education. You may figure it's not on you. Well, at the end of the day, you got to own some of it because you're making me do it. And after that, I don't know, my local rep asked me, if, you know, have you ever thought about running? And I said, hell no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and then I went home and thought about it and um, talked with my husband. I was self-employed at the time and ended up saying, well, that looks like it would be interesting. And, and I did. I when you ran I ran as a
0: Democrat. I did. And uh, you remained a Democrat for... Well, the,
1: long... the eight years that I served, right. I was a Democrat. I unenrolled after, at the end of my, my last term um, in 2014. And what made you unenroll? Um, well, I found that I had more difficulty with people who were allegedly on the same team than I did with people on the other team. Um, and that came down to uh, feeling, like, feeling heard, it's fascinating to watch it. It, it, you know. I and you see it differently when you're on the inside than you did, you know. And you can't ever go back to seeing it the way you used to see it. Right. Once it, it just comes. There were there were some specific things that happened in 2010 at the election 2010 when Paula Page won for the first time. The both bodies of the legislature were majority Republican. Yep. And I was the assistant leader working with Emily Kane. Um, it was our leader, the caucus leader in the House at the time, and I, I witnessed and was party to some things that happened during the next campaign in 2012 that I almost walked away from the whole thing. I was so angry and so frustrated. Um, so I sat in the back of the room and kept my mouth shut and did my piece for you know, constituent service is a big part of, of serving course, in the House, of and, which I really enjoyed and, and did that, you know, through my last term. But I, I was in the process of separating myself emotionally from, I, I just found that I couldn't believe that I continued to voluntarily be on a team where I didn't feel respected or valued. And you know, the only one who can decide if you're in a political party is you. It felt very different from the beginning of my service to the end. How so? We used to be really competitive during the campaign, my experience, but then once the votes were counted, governing is a collaborative exercise. If you're going to do it well, you know, if only if there's only 68 Republicans in the body, that's 68 people who were elected by Mainers in those districts. They, they have value, they have opinions, They. They ought to be included in the conversation. They can't control the outcome. But we, we stopped shifting from competition to collaboration, and we just competed all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's as if we were always
0: campaigning. Do you and- think that social media had something to do with that? Sure. Do you think that the larger national political landscape had something to do with that? Yes. Do you think that there's a cure for that? Can we go back to collaborating? Here's the challenge. Yeah. The political parties control all the
1: rules, okay? So is it possible? Sure. But we have to take responsibility for our politics back and say, hell no, I don't want to do it that way anymore. The reason I ran for governor is that I don't— I believe that you compete during the campaign. I was a job applicant. I had an 18-month-long job interview with 500,000 people. Okay, I was inadequately persuasive. I did not win. I do not regret one minute of the exercise. No, (laughs)
0: Um, no.
1: I'm more selfish now. Okay, you've
0: heard it here on Sarah Speaks First. (laughs) Terry Hayes is not running for governor. No,
1: no, no. It's it requires a significant personal sacrifice in time. I learned a lot. I loved uh, doing it, but. Maine's next governor should be considerably younger than I am. Mm. That is my belief system, that how do you attract young people? You put them in positions of responsibility, and there's a really good headliner right there. Who is that young person mm. that um, that has an interest that's willing to be a leader uh, and for the better good as opposed to for personal, um, I don't know, I, I can't think of the right word, uh, embellishment or mm-hmm. whatever? Um so my, my I, th- I think that the way we do our politics can be a conscious choice and should be and it's often not We we spend our time trying to make the other guys look bad You know as, as if the worst thing that could possibly happen would be if you the other party wins and and then they win and You know it <laughs> mm-hmm. goes
0: life as we know it and then you look around and you say well really you know we survived when it comes to the question of age don't you think though there's something to be said for true experience? Yes. and so yeah where's that I'm 45 now okay. and I still feel you're so
1: much better kept than I am
0: Adequ- <laughs> adi- ina- very inadequately prepared to run you know at someone 45 years old for an executive seat such as a governor right mm. but what happened mm. what, what is the what's the sweet spot on age for those leader executive leadership positions do you think? And do you think it's different for women and men? Because it oh, does take a, women, a long, you know, on average, a longer time to reach
1: it, it those positions. But, but but it does, but it shouldn't. I'm 63. I just okay. turned
0: 63
1: last month. Yeah, um, But I am not that much smarter now than I was when I first— I mean, I, I understand more about the challenges, but I don't know anything more about the answers because the answers aren't coming from the person that got the most votes. It's coming mm-hmm. from the people they put around them. Okay, That's the wisdom. It, it, the most important question to ask a candidate for governor, who's going to be your chief of staff and who's going to be in your cabinet? Because if, if the person running for governor isn't smart enough to know that they're not very smart, they're not nearly as smart as the p- people that they mm-hmm. put around them, mm-hmm. and, and who's going to be willing to work with them. Mm-hmm. That's the benefit. Yeah. And I don't think that there's an age with that. or I, I think it would be difficult... I think it was difficult for example for for paul you know to figure out how to work with the legislature if you haven't had some exposure paula, in, paula page mm-hmm. in you know with with that branch i think he well he clearly found it very frustrating at times
0: just from his own comments and for those who don't know and who are listening for out of state, Paula Page was a Republican governor that was re-elected um, for a second term and served eight years. Correct. Yes. So,
1: and I served in the legislature for four years under former Governor Baldacci, who was a Democrat, and yeah. four years under Paula Page. Was
0: there a difference when the Democrats and the Republicans were in charge as far as your experience is concerned, especially when you became unenrolled? Um. Or were they both their own my special? My
1: I unenrolled at the end of my legislative service yeah. and ran for state treasurer yeah. as, an, as an independent, as, as an, well, really unenrolled, as a non enrolled individual, because right. we don't have an independent category in Maine. Um, but unaffiliated, unenrolled in, in mm-hmm. either party. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and was only successful because of my legislative service. The legislature elects the state treasurer in yep. Maine, and, and at that time, there was a Democratic incumbent and a Democratic majority, but but the Republicans had enough votes, and I had enough relationships with Democrats that I could win, mm-hmm. and did. Even though know, I think it surprised everybody but me, because I can count. <laughs> I knew that you know it's kind of scary when you look at the Constitution and you realize you can become state treasurer, and the only qualifications are 94 votes coming out of the House and the Senate. It. You don't have to know anything about money, you don't have to know anything about managing it, it's, uh, there's no other qualifications. Mm-hmm. So I was qualified. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I say it that way, but I learned a lot. I was on the Committee of Oversight that oversees Treasury when I was in the legislature, and it, it was an opportunity to continue my service to the state and to people of the state of Maine, and I felt I had value to add, even though I was not. Uh, I was termed out. Maine has, uh, you know, uh, uh, term limits in our legislative service. And I, I was done because mm-hmm. I came up against a term limit.
0: So was there a difference in serving oh, under the right. two I'm parties?
1: Um,
0: and when I say that, I guess what I mean is, was there a difference as a legislator having served terms mm-hmm. under the Democrats and then subsequently terms, a term under the Republicans, as far as how the process went, how you felt people were heard, or do you think the process withstood, the legislative process withstood the management by both parties? Or, not to say who was better or who was worse, mm-hmm. but was there a time in which things worked for the people better? Better.
1: Um, I would say Yes, they, well, some leaders are leaders because they're elected and some people become states people or statesmen when they serve, mm. and um, I think we witnessed some statesmen. Mm. Um, I thought that um, Kevin Ray and Mike Thibodeau in particular, um, Kevin was in the majority, uh, Mike was in the majority in the Senate. Um, when, so these were two gentlemen who served as successively as presidents of the Senate, yeah. and I would say in my dealings uh, with them, I felt that there was a difference. That there, uh, I was in the other party. I was in leadership for a portion of that time, and um, I, I would say I felt differently, which is which is part of what's odd. If I was serving as a Democrat, but I didn't feel the same. Uh, respect or relationship necessarily with leadership in the Democratic Party. That's why it's part of what I say. You look back and you think, "Well, wait a minute, what is this about?" Our politics don't have to agree for us to have a strong working relationship and
0: to demonstrate respect. You know. Interestingly, about both Kevin Ray and Mike Thibodeau, they're both small business owners. Yes. Kevin Ray makes raised mustard, mm-hmm. mean mustard, lots of flavors. Several are in my refrigerator as yes. they speak. It's an <laughs> ongoing theme at my house. Um, but Mike Thibodeau um, has a business as well, a shovel business, correct? Mm-hmm. Manufacturing Manufacturing, and makes yeah. shovels. Do you think that being business owners helps in your service to the people of Maine as a legislator? Do you think that mm-hmm. that's a good perspective?
1: Well, it needs to be part of the mix, but I'm not sure that there's a leg up um, I mean I think that people who who made their career in public education bring value to the legislative process people who um, you know who have been entrepreneurs do uh, people who served in the military do I mean I think there's a the, the a citizen legislature a, absolutely the broader the diversity the the better the outcomes if we treat each other with respect and, and value. Everybody who serves in either one of those chambers was put there by the people of Maine. Mm. And respecting that and, and, and the, the role that they play, you know, I, I, I think we, we get, we've, done, we've become too uh, divided and too much divisiveness to so that we are competing all the time. And, the, and when the collaborating happens, um, it doesn't get nearly enough um, uh, play or reward or coverage in the news so that it, the spikes of it, it when, and when you're on the inside, you might feel like it was much more collaborative. You were on that committee. You worked really hard on that sure. bill. You worked on it over two years. You finally, and, but that story is not told. It's not told by either party. It's not told by the media. So, it, it, so if it, you, you go home and you hear the news and you wonder, "Wait a minute, I was there for that. That's not how I understood it, and that wasn't my experience. It's just around that we mentioned, uh, you know, social media. What's getting the buzz? What's being repeated? Whose tweet is, you know, raising attention? And oftentimes it's negative and not, not the best work that we do. Open primaries? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a taxpayer. I'm paying for that election to happen. I should be able to step up and mark one or the other of those ballots. I don't want someone to tell me, well, you can if you want to join the party. Excuse me, why don't your party pay for that? You want to have a closed one just for your party members? You pony up the money. <laughs> term limits. Um, uh, insult voters. Mm-hmm. The only people whose choices are limited by term limits is the voter. And do you not trust them? You know what's really interesting, if you look back, I was serving in the legislature when we hit the the 20-year anniversary. So if you look 20 years before term limits and 20 years afterwards, you know what the difference was? It really wasn't in the longevity of individuals, it was the leadership. And if you think about what the problem was that got us term limits, it wasn't the rank-and-file, it was a leadership problem. Think how long uh, Representative Martin served and the time frame when we had these conversations about term limits and that whole piece. That's when we were having them. Who is still serving in the main legislature? John Martin. There you go. So, you know, I mean, I just if you just look at the data and say, okay, you know, we often solve the wrong problem.
0: Interesting. Okay, and I think that, we and is would, it because the problem is identified because of political? It's will? distorted part of it.
1: It's, mm-hmm. it, Who is the enemy? It's that whole sense, you know. Um, and because, the parties make the rules. You know, why don't we have open primaries? Because the parties don't want them. And and there are many more Democrats and or Republicans serving in the legislature that make the rules than there are people who are not enrolled. So it's a threat. If you think about it uh, economically, have you ever read any Catherine Gale's stuff? I have not. Okay, I'm going to send you uh, a, a link. Catherine Gale is a businesswoman. I want to say from Wisconsin, and she, if you Google her, she has a TED talk or TEDx talk, and she has a couple of things that she's written that are about what we need to do in order to take uh, our basically our our government back mm. and and stop this. You know. Well, it's every minute of every day competition. Because getting outcomes, you know, winning, winning is about winning elections. It's not about winning on the policy level because things never change. They don't have to do anything. They just have to stay relatively even in the parties. You know, so I'm, Catherine is just one of those folks who's really thought about this. She did, it. her first thing I read, she did with Mike Porter, who's a business
0: mm-hmm.
1: professor at Harvard. Mm-hmm. on the. the on the economics of, of political um, uh, the divisiveness and, and how it, it plays to the, uh, the, the perpetuation of the, party, the two-party system without having to generate any outcomes that the rest of us are paying for.
0: So you're talking about kind of this concept of collaboration over competition.
1: Well, it, it competition during the election, there's no question yep. about it, but it has a place. Once the votes are counted, you've got a job to do. It doesn't say you go beat up on the other guy. It says go get the work done.
0: In interviewing women, collaboration and compassion and Mm -hmm. understanding of a a colleague or an opposing party or uh, anyone in your sphere is a common theme that's Mm -hmm. come up when I interview women in business. Tell me why you think that's something that women bring up. Why is that a common thread based on your experience?
1: Hmm. Well, it, it, it might well be that more often than not, um, our voices aren't heard, that we're part of that, of that silent, we're, well, I'm not terribly silent, but um, an assumption that, that if you lead, I will follow, mm. as opposed to, wait a minute, we, uh, we, maybe we see leadership differently, which is w- w- listening. You know, listening is a lost art. It is uh, you. You can't collaborate with someone, if, and you can't even invite them to collaborate unless you're willing to listen to them. And oftentimes in our politics, we're not paying attention unless we're the ones talking. And I think women get that. I. I, I don't. I don't know. And it's not that no men do, but there are more times in in my experience, my life experience. When I felt like I had to take extra effort in order to be heard, mm. which may make me more sensitive to those others who have difficulty being heard, um, and not wanting to marginalize them, not wanting to leave anybody out. Everybody has a value proposition. It's just a matter of helping them find a place where it fits good, you know. And if they, if you're elected, you have the trust of those people who voted for you, and. You bring something of value to the table. Let's figure out what it is, you know. I don't, and just the other thing is it takes away the responsibility of knowing all the answers. I know very few answers. I know a lot of questions. Right. But I don't know the answers because in many instances. know how
0: I'm sitting here asking questions. Yes. (laughs) But but there
1: isn't... um, there isn't one right answer for most things. You know, it depends is the start of the sentence, and then you look at the variables. So there's a value. I learned uh, in the legislature working on civility um, the, the whole, and with the National Institute for Civil Discourse that probably what I need most to understand with my colleagues is what's their political journey consisted of? Where did their beliefs come from? What experiences inform their perspective Mm -hmm. and their politics? And those are conversations we never had. Um, Leadership didn't encourage them. And I I desperately wanted to have those conversations in the legislature. You know, I remember saying to the caucus when I was the assistant leader, uh, the conservative group, the Maine Heritage Policy Center, invited the whole legislature to dinner. and we were gonna, They were going to talk about education and they're a conservative think tank. Yep. And um, I said, well, hell, you're going to buy dinner? I'll go okay. and listen. You know, I, I wanted to understand why some of my Republican colleagues had where their belief system came from. So in caucus, I said, I think we should go. And I had four or five people just say, that's the no, that just gives them, you know, credit because you're there. And I said, You can't even be in the conversation if you're not in the room. I said, you know, education and funding it was a big challenge at the time. What's the harm in listening? You don't have to agree with anything, you know, but but why wouldn't went and it ended up eleven of us went. That's great. You know, and 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 there was an opportunity to ask some questions. Perfectly respectful, totally, you know, nothing, nothing that was uh, confrontational about it, and it's a way to try to change the conversation. If you say, well, "Hell no, I won't go," and, and you stay, then how does that help? You know, so I, I think that showing up, listening, trying to understand where uh, somebody whose perspective is very different, where did it come from? may mean that we can find a different solution, one that neither one of us anticipated to start with, but ends up um, getting us where we both need to be, you know. um, When we go into it saying, I know the answer, we're probably
0: wrong. Two last questions. Okay. One, how has the opportunity, how have opportunities for women changed in the sphere in which you've worked over the course of your career. Um,
1: my father who died when I was 11. Um, prior to his death would be he would say he'd sit us on his on his lap when we got our report card. And we'd go over every grade. And he'd say you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. You just want to be darn good at it. Okay? And he believed that. He had five daughters. I don't know why <laughs> um, you know, I, I, and I the two youngest—my brother and my youngest sister—weren't even old enough to be in school uh, when he passed away. So they didn't get to hear that, but that was something that, you know, from—and and you have to be smart so you can go to college. My dad had a GED that he got in the Navy, and my mother well, was an RN, but before you needed to have a four-year degree to be an RN. Um, so I grew up thinking, well, i got to go to college. I had no idea I was going to pay for it, we didn't have any money. but. Um, What's different? I, I never felt like I was overlooked, uh, because, but I had to help some of my male counterparts learn how to work side-by-side side with a woman. And um, my hope is that my daughter and her generation will benefit from that work that some of us have done so that they're, um, they don't have to do it themselves. In other words, I would hope that we've helped pave some of that. But I, I can't say that I can't think of a time. Someone might have thought, well, you can't do that. You're a woman, but, you know, it didn't stop me. <laughs> so <laughs> thank goodness I, I didn't feel like I, I, I can't point to a circumstance when um, someone said no. I, I mean, I was a softball umpire. I used to call men's league games when I was a teacher. It was my beer money in the summer. You know, because I didn't want to have to work in the summer. So if you just called, you know, balls and strikes for... A couple hours in the evening, you could go down to Reed State Park for the day and buy a couple beers on the way home. And you're
0: still (laughs) calling balls and strikes. You're still the umpire. (laughs) Yeah. So last question, I always ask everyone this. It fascinates me. What do you consume? Music, television, your reading materials, anything from pop culture, Hmm. favorite authors, your news sources? What do you consume?
1: I generally avoid the news um, mm. because I don't feel that it improves my life in any way. Um, my husband taught me that. I don't have to. Of course, when you're running for governor, you have to do this. But there's some freedom when you're not. <laughs> so um, if I'm looking for news, I will go to um, Maine Public Radio. Um, I will look at the headlines pretty much every day for the PPH and the Bangor Daily. But I don't necessarily read a lot of it. I'm just, just in case someone says, hey, did you see? you know sure um mm, i have a rule if i'm reading during the work day i must be learning something and if i'm not reading during the work day it's got to be brain fluff and brain fluff comes in lots of sizes but it can be historical novels um, romance novels sometimes um kindle unlimited subscription sure. an audible subscription i'm more of a reader if my husband is not home for a week, I probably won't turn the TV on. I might to see to see the weather forecast, but that would be it. Um, right. I, other than that, I don't. I'm not a media consumer in that way. And um, and if you were to get in my car and push the radio buttons, there's one for NPR. There's one for um, oh, George and Rick. One of one point three. Great 30. fellows. Okay. We love George and Rick. Um, and there's one for 96.5, which I think is a sports radio that my husband programmed in, which I think is where the Red Sox are. But There uh, you go. So uh, other than that, I'm generally listening to a book off my phone when I'm in the car with my Bluetooth. So, Terry Hayes,
0: thank you so much. Oh, this was fun. This was fun. Yeah, it's, it's so great yeah, to, to sit with you and, and take the time to chat. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you to everyone listening for joining us for this episode of Sarah Speaks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sarah Speaks, where we talk with women about business, not about women in business. Please be sure to hit subscribe and stay tuned for upcoming episodes.